Well, friends, it is uh, great to be with you. If this is your first time here, let me introduce myself. My name is Ryan. I get the privilege and honor of serving as one of the pastors here. And um, uh, let me tell you, I feel a bit like a kid in a candy store as we come to this section on the Sermon on the Mount. You know, years ago, I was uh, serving in a church and we had a missionary come who had come from a closed country. And uh, he told this gripping story of guys coming together. And at that point, um, scripture was so limited in the area that they would get one Bible and they would divide it out three chapters at a time and pass it around to the various churches. And it was a gripping story. But the thing that caught me is he asked the question, if you knew that you could only have three chapters of scripture, what would you choose? And what surprised me was how quickly the answer came for me. And it's the three chapters that we're about to launch into over the next uh, few months. Um, Friends, I I can honestly say that there are probably few sections of scripture that have had more of an impact on my own journey. And I think even in our understanding of what it means to follow Jesus, than these words that we call the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, in the top five greatest memories of my life, one was having the opportunity to actually be on the mountain where Jesus taught these words and to share them. In fact, here's a picture. In fact, uh, from that mountain, if you want to check it out later, I actually picked up a rock um, there in the teaching place, you know, and just this humbling thought of, oh my word, here I am where Jesus spoke the words that forever changed our perspective and the trajectory of human history. As you can tell, uh, these chapters are kind of a big deal for me. And uh, when we look at these chapters, I believe that scholars, theologians, philosophers have all looked and marveled at what these words are about. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, famed uh, theologian, referred to them as Jesus' discipleship manifesto. Still others have called it the metaphysics of Jesus, his redefinition of what reality is all about. But can I suggest to you that at the core of the Sermon on the Mount is a simple invitation, an invitation to change everything about life as we know it. And what the Sermon on the Mount is at its core is an invitation to apprentice the way of Jesus in every way of his life. An apprentice is one who learns by walking alongside of another. An apprentice is one who learns not because of position or rank, but because of relationship. And in the same way, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to radically redefine reality as we know it. In fact, uh, we're going to get ready to launch into the first of these sections, a very well-known section known as the Beatitudes. But before we do that, I want to take a step back and look at the context and the theological underpinnings of the Sermon on the Mount so that we can understand what this beautiful section of Scripture is really all about in the larger flow of Matthew's argument. And so today, we're going to take a step back, and I want to look at some of the key ideas and context that lead up to this point. And so if you have your Bible, let's open again to that passage that Joshua just read for us in Matthew uh, chapter 4. Now it's here that we find some beautiful things about this reality that Jesus gives us. In fact, uh, these verses fall in a larger section that immediately fall, follow Jesus' um, coming out from the desert. 
It was there that he was tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. It was there that he is tempted with temptations towards security, temptations towards approval, temptations towards making himself the center of all things and significance. And time after time after time, Jesus resists. By the way, for those of you who have done the follow curriculum, uh, you'll see that Jesus systematically turns away from every idol in these temptations. And he comes to the end of this, and we're told in Matthew chapter 4, verse 11, that the devil left him, and angels begin to minister to him. And then right out of that place, we come into chapter 12, or verse 12. That now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdraws into Galilee. Uh, the John here that's being referenced to is John the Baptist. And uh, John the Baptist was arrested because of his uh, way of teaching about this reality that he called the kingdom. In fact, just earlier in the chapter, he calls us to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then we're told in verse 13 that Jesus uh, leaves Nazareth and he goes to Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali to fulfill what might be spoken by the prophet Isaiah. The reference here is to Isaiah chapter 9 and it's there that we find the passage that we often quote at Christmas that the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And then we come to this beautiful statement in verse 17 where I want to spend the bulk of our time today because I think it's so important for us to understand as we walk into the Sermon on the Mount. And it's simply this. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For Jesus, Jesus' articulation of the gospel, Jesus' articulation of this thing that had come to pass because he was now on the scene is encapsulated in this phrase. Interestingly enough, if you go back to Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, you'll notice that John the Baptist himself uses the exact same phrase to describe the reality of this thing that God is doing. Add to that the fact that in the book of Mark, Mark describes the early teaching ministry of Jesus in much the same way. That the core message of Jesus' teaching is, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is drawing near. Needless to say, that's kind of a big deal. And, and so as we begin to unpack what Jesus is saying here, I think the first question that we really have to wrestle with is, well, what in the world is the kingdom of heaven? When Jesus says that we need to repent because the kingdom of heaven is drawn near, what exactly is he talking about? And I think to understand that, we really have to look at the larger context of the story of God's interaction with humanity. And so here's a little diagram that I've come up with that I think describes this reality of the kingdom of heaven. You know, it really begins all the way back in God's creation of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 1. It's there that humanity and God exist in this perfect state of relationship. God and Adam and Eve walk in, in the garden in the cool of the day. They enjoy unrestricted fellowship, a perfect relationship. Until one day the evil one comes into the garden in the form of a serpent. And he says to Eve, Eve, has God really said that you shouldn't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Oh, Eve. Poor, naive, silly Eve. Are you that foolish? No, God knows that if you eat that fruit, you'll be like him, able to know the difference between good and evil. And so, Eve 
reaches out and she takes the fruit and she eats it. Adam uh, follows in that example. And for the first time, what humanity does is they step out of God's rule. And they step into the kingdom of self. And with that come all the consequences of that life. A life of suffering. A life of death. A life of loss. A life of pain. And that becomes the condition of humanity. Literally this moment when life is God always designed it was turned upside down. And that becomes the norm of human existence. Until... In the moments that we just celebrated here at Good Friday and Easter, God does the unthinkable. That God comes in the person of Jesus, God in the flesh, and he lays down his life on the cross for us. He cries out these words, it is finished. And you know, at the moment Jesus dies on the cross, something beautiful happens that we never talk about on Good Friday. If you read in the book of Matthew, one of the things that you'll notice is that when Jesus dies, we're told that for many days, the dead were walking around the city. Now, I don't know how all that works. That would have been pretty amazing to see. I mean, was grandma suddenly there? I mean, what, what, what happened there? We don't, we don't get much of a description, but what we do know is that when Jesus dies, something radically changed in the human condition. And all of a sudden, the dead were raised Three days later, Jesus himself is raised from the dead. And in that moment, he connects us in that resurrection life through the presence of his spirit. And in that moment, everything about how we thought reality worked suddenly turned on its head. And what begins to happen is that in this kingdom of God, we begin to experience forgiveness, righteousness, healing, transformation, the presence of God's Holy Spirit living inside of us. By the way, a quick aside. I remember hearing someone say once, you know, I've always said that when I die, I want to go to Moses and ask Moses, Moses, what was it like to see the pillar of cloud in the pillar of fire in the desert? Like, what was it like to see the Red Sea split? And he said, you know, as I thought about it, I realized, no, Moses is probably going to ask me, tell me, what was it like to have the spirit of the living God alive inside of you? Like, how did that work? I mean, we saw the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, but it was always out there. It was always on the outside. But you have, you have God's kingdom, God's presence alive inside of you. How did you not explode? Tell me how this works, because I don't get it. And I think the wisdom in that statement reminds us just how powerful and overarching this reality of the presence of the kingdom of God changes everything about how we think the world works. Now you might say, well, wait a second, Ryan. If this kingdom of God has come, uh, why is it that we live in a world that's such a mess? I mean, turn on the evening news. We hear stories of division, brokenness, pain in the world today. How do you reconcile those two things? And it's why scholars have recognized that this kingdom of God is both an already and a not yet. That the kingdom of God has come crashing into our presence here and now, and yet there is a way in which we long and await for its fulfillment. What does that look like, though? For me, one of the phrases that I think so powerfully describes this are the words of Jesus in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6 that we'll look at in more detail here in the weeks to come. And there Jesus prays a very interesting phrase. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
I mean, in a sense, isn't that kind of a weird thing to pray? God, your kingdom come. God is the almighty, all-powerful creator over all things. In what sense does his kingdom come? And we often, because of that comma, separate those two phrases. Can I suggest to you that they actually modify each other? That the way in which God's kingdom comes is as his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, what's the fundamental difference between earth and heaven? Well, in heaven, there is this place in which the presence of God is fully realized. The angels live in submission to the will and the desire of God. The rule and the reign of God is fully realized and experienced by the angels in every form of life. And what Jesus is saying here is he's giving us a powerful invitation to align again with the reality of the rule of God in our lives. Let me offer this as a definition then of the kingdom of heaven. That the kingdom of heaven is the experienced rule of God. And when I say experienced, I want to suggest to you two dynamics of that. That they are the spaces where humanity sees and aligns with the transforming work of God in their life. The kingdom of God is all about the places where we come into increasing alignment and the experience of the shalom, the experience of the peace and the joy and the life that comes because God's presence is at work within our life. And friends, as we begin to enter into that place, um, both our lives and the world are never the same. In fact, one of the things that I want to draw your attention to is Jesus' description of where this kingdom is. That the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here. It's now. Is it fully realized? No. Do we look forward to a day in Christ's return that it will be fully realized? Absolutely. But may we never miss out on this miracle that God, through the presence of Christ in the spirit, are doing something that has radically changed the human condition, both now and forever. It becomes an invitation to redefine reality as we know it. And it's why then I want to suggest to you that it's the presence of the kingdom that ultimately is going to call for repentance. In fact, did you notice that the operative term that Jesus uses to describe what we're supposed to do in response to the kingdom of heaven is to repent? Now, can I just say from the outset, for me, this word to repent um, is kind of a loaded one. Um, If I'm honest, when I think of the word repent, what comes to mind for me is some guy on TV, red-faced and with a Bible, slapping a pulpit, telling people, um, you know, they better turn or burn. But can I tell you that the idea of repentance is a thread that fills the pages of Scripture. So what exactly is it? This word repentance is actually one of my favorite words in the Greek. It's actually a hybrid of two words. It's the Greek word metanoia. And it means a changing of one's mind. Now here's why that's so incredibly important. Repentance is not first and foremost feeling sorry. Repentance, first and foremost, is not a change of external behavior. 
But repentance at its core is a transformation of the human heart that comes in response to something that God has presented or shown us in our lives. It's why when we talk about the Beatitudes, I get frustrated with what I learned about the Beatitudes growing up. You know, growing up, I remember being in Sunday school and uh, sweet Miss Cornell telling me, you know, the Beatitudes are the Beatitudes. They're the attitudes that we're supposed to be. No, that's not the Beatitudes at all. In fact, later in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to tell us that if the standard is human performance, your righteousness has to surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees, or you won't get into the kingdom of heaven. And nobody in that day and age could have done that. What Jesus is telling us is that these beatitudes are an invitation to see life through a different set of lenses, to let reality itself be redefined in light of this beautiful thing that we call the kingdom of heaven. Are there any fans out there of the um, Chronicles of Narnia books? One of my favorite lines in, um, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is a scene in which Aslan is being sacrificed on the stone table. And after he's resurrected, Aslan is explaining to Lucy and to Susan what happened. And he, and he makes this beautiful phrase that of the deep magic, time itself turned on itself. If humanity lived in this upside down state as a result of the curse of sin, what God has done is now he has flipped it on its head, and time turned backwards. Time, reality as we know it, lives in a different way, and now we are invited to walk in light of that new reality. Can I suggest to you that's what Paul talks about when he talks about walking by the Spirit? It's walking in light of the new reality and the work that God has done in our lives. In fact, if I had to provide a definition of repentance, I would simply put it this way, that repentance is a willingness to see the world through Jesus' perspective and to align our lives through that reality. Can I tell you, as we make our way through the Sermon on the Mount, there are going to be times and moments that it's going to cause us to bristle. It's going to cause us and come up against many well-held assumptions of our culture. I mean, I think about the sections where Jesus redefines righteousness. You know, the world says, hey, you're a good person. You've never committed an act of adultery. But Jesus moves the conversation from the external act of the heart. And he says, it's not the act of adultery itself, but have you ever looked at another person with lustful intent? It's the same thing. Or we say as a culture, hey, look, I'm a good person. I've never killed anybody. Jesus will say, hey, have you allowed stewing anger and grudges to cause you to wish that another person was dead? Even in cutting them off in relationship? The same inner attitude of the heart is present there. Ah. And what Jesus is going to do is he's going to invite us to look and to come in alignment with the way in which he views the world. That righteousness is not just about the external action, but the internal transformation of the human heart as he continues to refine 
and transform our hearts and lives. It's why then I want to make this suggestion to you, that the Beatitudes are a kind of perspective recalibrator. The phrase that I always like to use uh, for the Beatitudes is there are gospel goggles. You know, I have a really bad astigmatism. And uh, what begins to happen is once something gets out on the horizon, things become really blurry. Like if I take these off, wow, I need these more than I used to. Um, <laughs> when I take these off, you all get suddenly blurry. I can, I, I can kind of make you out. I can, kind of, I, I can kind of see you. But when I put my glasses on, the prescription is one so that I can see things for what they really are. Friends, that's what the Beatitudes were always designed to do. They're a beautiful invitation on the part of Jesus to see life in a fresh way, to see and align our lives with this kingdom and his rule. You know, I'm reminded again and again that one of the first parts of entering into the kingdom life is really about the invitation to see. You know, as I think about the journey of seeing, one of the things that I am reminded that oftentimes the people who see the greatest and the people that have the ability to incarnate and and put right in front of us the beauty of what it means to see are artisans. Um, I'm reminded again and again here at Fellowship that we have a deep bench of amazing artisans in a variety of different mediums. Everything from songwriting to painting to sculpting to quilt making, uh, the list could go on and on. And as we began to look at this series, I just, I, I felt a nudge and a desire to throw out a challenge to our church body. And so here's what I want to do. I want to call upon you artists to help us see. As we begin this journey of teaching through the Sermon on the Mount, I want you to take whatever medium is your medium. And if God would inspire you to write a song, to make a quilt, to draw a picture, whatever it may be, would you act upon that and do that and share that with us? And what we're going to do at the conclusion of this series in our new building, hopefully, um, (laughs) is we are going to have an art installation. And we're going to have a a space to put on display what God has been teaching us through the Sermon on the Mount and to share the stories of how God spoke to us through these different passages. And so here's what I want to challenge you. If you are an artisan of any kind, graphic designers, uh, musicians, I don't know, there are probably more mediums out there than I could possibly list. If God would inspire you to do something. And by the way, kids, you're included in this too. This isn't just a call to the adults. If God would inspire you to do something, um, let me know. And we're, we're going to collect those and share those as a church family. These images and pictures. And you don't have to wait till the end. If, if something strikes you and you create something, share that with us. May even make it into one of the weekend messages. Because guys, um, God has given us each an incredible and deep ability to see. And you know how I've learned that I come to see the most? Through community. Through, through hearing the stories of brothers and sisters as they share the stories of what God is speaking to them through various passages. And so, consider the challenge out there. Uh, would love to see what God might say or do as we go through this. 
But as we do that, can I, can I invite you that the invitation in that moment will not just be to see, but to do the deeper work of aligning. It is one thing to know what the right thing is. It's one thing to see a truth that is another thing altogether to align our lives in light of that reality. And it's why then that the presence of the kingdom of God is going to change my understanding of blessing. You know, it's interesting as we, as we look at this passage and as we go down to chapter 5, we notice that as Jesus begins to minister to these great crowds, he goes up onto the mountain and he sits down and his disciples come to him. And it's in that context that Jesus begins to teach the words of the Sermon on the Mount. We might gloss over that as a mere detail, but can I tell you that is so significant for our understanding of what's going on here. Because what Jesus is reminding us of is the realities of the Beatitudes. The realities of the Sermon on the Mount really are for those that are participating in the life of the kingdom. This message is not addressed to the great crowds. It's addressed to the disciples with the great crowds listening on. And when we understand that, we understand that Jesus is changing everything about how we think reality works. This is one of my favorite paintings about the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, there are key scenes. It's uh, by an artist named Rosselli. And you'll notice right in the center, you see the 12 disciples at the feet of Jesus, listening to the words that he's speaking. And different vignettes of the Sermon on the Mount are carried off in these different scenes. But again, I think it's so important for us to recognize that if you were to remove Jesus from the message of the Sermon on the Mount, you would lose everything. This is not just a rhetoric of good moral teaching. This is not just a rhetoric of a good way to live. It is an invitation to apprentice the way of the master and to experience the transformed life that he has for us. In fact, the word beatitude actually comes from Latin. The Latin word beatitus, which means to be blessed. And you'll notice again and again, Jesus uses this phrase. Blessed are this person. Blessed is this group. Again, not because they do these things, but because they've learned to see life differently through the lens of the kingdom. I mean, look at this. Think about this for a second. Look who Jesus names as the blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Not to give away too much of next week, but blessed are you when you recognize how spiritually messed up you are. Congratulations! Because now you finally see what grace is all about. Blessed are you when you mourn. Because when you mourn, you'll be comforted. Blessed are the meek. Blessed to those who are willing to hold their anger under control, those who are willing to stop demanding their rights, those who are willing to set themselves to the side in the trust that God will settle all scores. Congratulations to them, because those are the ones that are going to inherit the earth. Oh, blessed are those who are fasting and have learned to set aside the appetites of this world to long for for the deep meat of the kingdom of heaven. Oh, man, they are so blessed. Because they're the ones that are going to learn what it really means to be satisfied. Oh, blessed are you when you're persecuted. Blessed are you when you're persecuted. Because you join in the family business of what it means to walk with God in a world that is terribly broken. 
Now, when you, when you think of a list of who's blessed, is this who would meet your scorecard? I mean, we as a culture would say, blessed are the successful. Blessed are the internet celebrities. Blessed are the people who have it all together. Blessed are the happy, the comfortable, and the content. And Jesus is saying, don't waste your life in a game of football by counting how many three-point shots you make. Recognize that the game has fundamentally changed because of the presence of the kingdom of heaven. We'll talk about this a little bit next week, but uh, this word blessed, I love this word. It, it means probably the best phrase would be congratulations of the highest kind. The best way that I can describe what this blessed means, um, and I'm probably dating myself a little bit here. Are you all familiar with Publishers Clearinghouse? You know, and those scenes that we would see on TV where Ed McMahon would show up on somebody's porch with the giant $10 billion check, okay? And it would be like, okay, you didn't just win a dollar in a scratcher in some gas station somewhere. You won the big prize, like the granddaddy of all jackpots. Woo! Congratulations of the highest kind. All of that is bound up in this term of what it means to be blessed. It isn't, yeah, you're not doing so bad. But in the Greek, it carries with it this sense of, man, you've won the greatest prize that all of life has to offer because your life is becoming more and more aligned with the kingdom of heaven. Can I suggest to you that oftentimes what entering into the kingdom of heaven looks like is it's a lot more about unlearning than it is learning? It looks a lot more like looking at the messages that this world has taught us and trusting that there is a greater principle at work than the voices of our culture and world that tell us if you get ahead, if you're successful, if you're important, if you're significant, if you look good on the outside, if you just could get your stuff together, then and only then are you blessed. The kingdom of heaven tells us no. God is at work God is up to something beautiful, turning the brokenness of this world on its head. And he invites us to join with him in that journey. And friends, it is in that invitation that we come to the core of what the Sermon on the Mount will invite us into. And so as we launch into this series, the question that I want to leave you with is simply this. Where is Jesus inviting you to repent in light of the kingdom of heaven? Now remember what we mean by repent. It is both to see and to align in light of the reality of the presence of Jesus. Maybe repentance means redefining your definition of success. That success is not in the name that you can make for yourself, but the name that you can make for Jesus. Maybe repentance means choosing to finally confront that place in your life where unresolved anger and a grudge has held a grip on your heart and it has created division with you and another person in your journey. Maybe repentance means trusting 
that that innocent look at a computer screen that you think isn't hurting anybody really isn't all that innocent. And it is destructive to your heart, to your marriage, and to your life in relationship with Jesus. Maybe repentance means choosing to trust that rather than being anxious about the things of this world, rather than freaking out day by day about where's the next thing going to come from, to look at the birds of the field, how they neither sow nor reap, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And because of his rich goodness, we can trust that he will be faithful. Maybe repentance means choosing to trust that this kingdom is so big and so great that it's something we have to act on. It's like a man who builds his house on two foundations, one who sees and hears but does not act, and one who is willing to trade it all to build on the right foundation. Because at the end of the day, the kingdom of God is not something we can just know about. It is not something we can just see. It is to become the new orbit, the new reality around which we change every dimension of our life. Friends, as we enter into this journey, where is Jesus inviting you to repent? Where is Jesus inviting you to see life afresh through the gospel goggles? to see the beautiful reality of what he's doing in and through every corner of human existence. Friends, I can tell you because I can tell you the power that these words have had on my own life. They will change everything. And oh, let me tell you, it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. Because God is drawing near. Because God is near. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. And as they do that, I simply want to put this call from Jesus in verse 17, front and center. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. See and align with the rule of God, because God is setting all things right. God is here. God is transforming. God is shaping. Friends, that's the journey that we're about to launch into over the next several months. And my heart and my prayer has been that we will never be the same. That God in his mercy and grace will continue to shape us, to guide us, to lead us. Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for bringing this kingdom. It is, a king, it is not a kingdom that is afar off, but it is a kingdom that you have brought near. It is a kingdom that you have placed within our hearts because you have come to reflect a piece of your glory in our hearts. God, I, I want to dedicate this journey that we're going to go into over the next several months to you. And God, I pray that every week, every moment, you would draw us closer and closer to your own heart. 
Lord, that you would teach for us the gift of apprenticing your way, of learning to look, think, and live like you in every dimension of our life. That we might know you more. And that the world might see the depth and the beauty of your love. Jesus, we pray, make us more and more like you. And be glorified in and through our lives. In your name we pray. Amen.